Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I am joined by my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, the bard of North Jersey. <laughs> you, you, you are. So many important uh, Jersey-related accomplishments in no Jason's one, life. No one has found as many flowery ways to call someone a douchebag as I have, Josh. And in North <laughs> Jersey, that is a big accomplishment. So, you know. so, so true. So in this season of Awesome Movie Year, we have been talking about the films of 1977. And in past seasons, we've uh, devoted an episode to uh, an award winner, usually the Grand Jury Prize winner from the Sundance Film Festival. But of course, in 1977, the Sundance Film Festival did not exist. So we looked around for a different award winner, and we have settled on the Golden Globes Best Picture Musical or Comedy winner, which is The Goodbye Girl, written by Neil Simon. I guess, I assume Neil Simon, is he from Jersey too? Or we think of him as a New York guy. I think of him as a New York guy for sure. Okay, well, I don't know. You mentioned Jersey, so I thought maybe... He had something to do with Jersey. No, I was just really, I mean, I could have related it, you know, the Bard of the Upper West Side where this movie took mm, place, but sure. I just, you know, was trying to relate it to myself, to personalize it, to give the audience a little insight into who I am, Josh. Yes, that is true. If you didn't know, Jason is from New Jersey, which he never mentions. So, um, <laughs> and no. if you were also unaware, Josh just likes most things in life. So true. <laughs> Uh, so this was, yes, written, written directly for the screen by Neil Simon. Uh, Neil Simon, of course, known mainly as a playwright, and many of his plays were adapted into movies that he would then re write the screenplay for. But this was a, a film that he wrote directly for the screen. It was directed by Herbert Ross, who had a hell of a year in 1977 between this movie and his film The Turning Point, which won the Golden Globe for Best Motion Picture Drama. So... Two Herbert Ross films, both winning the Best Picture Award at the Golden Globes. I don't know if that's ever happened since. I, I should have tried to look that up, but I don't know where I could find that info. Or before. I think he's probably the only person to ever achieve that. Yeah, he's like uh, Steven Soderbergh before Steven Soderbergh competing and beating. And he didn't even beat himself. He he just double won. Right. Well, I think that's the unique thing at the Golden Globes. You can do that. And that, and that Soderbergh, that year when he made both Aaron Brockovich and Traffic, it wouldn't surprise me if both of those were nominated for Golden Globe Best Drama, but neither of those would be in a comedy category, so he yeah. wouldn't have been able to win both. Although, um, although Aaron Brockovich is quite funny, but this um, let's let's give a little depth. I mean, you know, neither neither of us have seen the Turning Point, but we probably should because along with the color purple, it has the most Oscar nominations ever without winning a single award. Uh, got 11 Oscar nominations. But to do a drama like that and a comedy like this in the same year, that's like awesome. This dude, this dude wrecks shop, as the kids used to say. <laughs> I never heard that phrase before, but uh, um, he certainly had an awesome movie year in 1977. Uh, and, and the turning point nominated for all those Oscars. Um, the Goodbye Girl also nominated for five Oscars including Best Picture, Best Actress for Marsha Mason, Best Supporting Actress for the uh, child actor in this movie, Quinn Cummings, Best Original Screenplay for Neil Simon, and it won an Oscar for Best Actor for Richard Dreyfuss, who was at the time the youngest 
actor to ever win Best Actor at age 30, um, which I would not have guessed that he was that old <laughs> watching this movie. You thought he you thought he was older or younger in this? Movie? Oh yeah, older, definitely older. I think yeah. he comes across as much. He's older always in this older. Movie. Greetings yeah. and salutations, sir. <laughs> I shall now do a Shakespearean monologue for you. <laughs> That's my Richard Dreyfus. I didn't, I, you know, I expected an impression when we talked about Arnold Schwarzenegger and I expected an impression when we talked about Werner Herzog. I had not expected the Richard Dreyfus impression. Yeah, it's not bad, right? You know, no, you make me not. batty woman. And yet I cannot get enough of you. <laughs> uh, Oscar winning work right there. Hey. Um, Talking about people who had an awesome movie year, Josh, Richard Dreyfuss, 1977, you mentioned he won Best Actor at the Oscars, youngest ever at the time. He was also in Close Encounters of the Third Kind this year. So, like, pretty amazing year for him. Yeah, it was. And those also, two very, very different movies, of course. And since we are we're themed theming this episode after the Golden Globes, we should say that it was nominated for five Golden Globes as well. And at the Golden Globes, it won four of those awards, including the Best Picture Musical or Comedy, uh, Best Actress Musical or Comedy for Marsha Mason, Best Actor Musical or Comedy for uh, Richard Dreyfuss, and it also won the Best Original Screenplay Award for Neil Simon. The only Golden Globe that it did not win was the Supporting Actress Award for Quinn Cummings. And I think that's partially because in those lead actor awards, it gets to be in the musical or comedy category, but the supporting actor awards um, then are opened up to all genres. And so she kind of got shut out there. Um, this movie was also a massive hit. Um, I didn't find any budget numbers, but I'm sure it didn't have a huge budget. I mean, it's essentially almost like a filmed play and it grossed $102 million uh, it was the first romantic comedy to gross over $100 million. And $102 million sounds like a lot to us now, but to put that in perspective, that is the equivalent to almost $450 million in 2020. Amazing. Yeah, imagine movie theaters were still a thing, Josh. Um, <laughs> can you imagine a romantic comedy today? Earning $450 million? I, I can't. I mean, that was honestly, like, I was so flabbergasted by that that I went to two different websites that calculated inflation because I thought that could not possibly be true. <laughs> but yeah, I, <laughs> I, I can't even think of the last romantic. Right, because it's just, it's mind-boggling. Like you said, could you imagine a romantic comedy making that much money right now? I can't think of the last one, even if it starred, you know, I don't know, Julia Roberts and Tom Hanks or the the younger equivalent of them right now, or the, you know, the biggest stars in the world aren't going to get a romantic comedy to make that much money. Well, sir, they are missing one key element. <laughs> uh, I like the, the, like the suspense that we had before Richard Dreyfus came in there to comment. On that. I um, mean, that's, that's, a, that's one of the things they're missing, you know? So I'm looking right now. I think my big fat Greek wedding is the all-time highest-grossing uh, romantic comedy with a worldwide gross of three hundred sixty-eight point seven million. So I'm sure there was some inflation there, but I I do wonder if this is with inflation the all-time highest-grossing romantic comedy ever. Yeah, it's entirely possible to me. I'm just amazed at how. Like this must just, you know, we talked about the popularity of like Star Wars earlier in this season, but I feel like this must have nearly hit that level of popularity at the time, at least. The other big success from this movie was the theme song. 
uh, Goodbye Girl by David Gates of noted soft rock icons Bread, which was also a big hit. It made it to number 15 on the Billboard Hot 100 singles charts. It was a staple for old David Gates there, and he even named his next album after it. And we've had a number of movies this season with with very successful theme songs. Um, of course, New York, New York, and the great theme song to Pumping Iron. And uh, Strosik. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, um, uh, that, that was definitely a trend, you know, um, of, yes, of the time. Yeah. It was like, you know, and then I think the trend became sadly like in the 80s and 90s, like, here's a song and it's popular. Let's make a movie based on it. Right. And what was amazing to me is that as as popular as an icon and iconic as that song is and as successful as this movie was, the song, however, was not nominated for any awards. Well, it's not very good. It's 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 very 70s. It's very soft rock 70s. Yeah, it's so. very it's very uh, bread. It's very bread. That's mm. true. <laughs> um, despite the success of this movie, critics were kind of mixed on it. Uh, Pauline Kael in The New Yorker said the prolific Neil Simon is at it again. This time it's a tearful comedy that he wrote directly for the screen and for Marsha Mason and Richard Dreyfuss. She's a 30-ish former chorus girl who's been deserted by an actor husband and then by an actor lover and has become so defensive that she's hostile toward a new actor who, through elaborately contrived circumstances, comes to share the apartment she and her 10-year-old daughter live in. So she says gratuitously abrasive things to him, and he prisses his lips and tells her off. The forced snappiness of the exchanges suggests two woodpeckers clicking at each other's heads. Irritability provides the rhythm in Neil Simon's universe. The only relief comes when Dreyfus is rehearsing in Richard III. Shakespeare's dialogue is a blessed sound. Simon's idea of, of depth is a tug at your heartstrings, and Marcia Mason's chin keeps quivering. Her face is either squinched up to cry or crinkled up to laugh. This may be the bravest, teariest, most crumpled face performance since the days of Janet Gaynor. Ooh, what yeah. is your deal, Pauline Kale, huh? You got, a, you got a, some heat with Neil Simon there, huh? Yeah, it seemed like Neil Simon, uh, multiple reviews that I read were not really kind. And Neil, Neil Simon was obviously hugely successful at this time, and I feel like maybe he was one of these people who became so successful that people started to kind of resent that, that, you know, now we, we think back on him and, you know, he's, he's maybe more beloved, but Neil Simon maybe at the time was the equivalent of like, you know, Judd Apatow or somebody where he gets too big for his own good in the, in the comedy world. Can I mention also on, on the poster that it says, thank you, Neil Simon for making us laugh about falling in love again. Like to put that on your own poster is pretty, uh, was that a quote from like? A <laughs> it doesn't. It doesn't or? have quote marks around it. I think it's, they wrote it. Yeah, oh, it's it's it's, a, it's, a, it's the marketing team themselves who are putting oh. themselves. <laughs> All right. Thanks a lot, Neil Simon. Hey, uh, one thing we should mention there because they keep bringing up Marsha Mason. Um, she was married to Neil Simon at the time, so that's kind she of was, and the, yeah, and this was created in part as as a vehicle for her by Neil Simon. Yeah, um, and, and even she says like, hey. Um, you know, my character had to be the quote unquote uh, 
worried adult in this thing and Richard Dreyfus got to have all the fun. That's what she said about the movie. So, you know. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's a fair assessment of this movie, I think. I, I just want to one other point in that. I, I didn't feel like the way they came together was ultra contrived. Like it, it totally worked for me. That didn't take me out of the story at all. No, I think the setup is fine. I mean, you expect a movie like this to have some contrivances so that you can put yeah, those two people together. That's a meat that's a, right there. Yeah. Yeah. It is. Absolutely. It's very expected in the genre. I think what happens after that is less appealing. But no, I agree with you. That was fine. I, I, I'm i I'm more than willing to go along with the setup to a romantic comedy as long as the, the follow through is good. Vincent Canby in the New York Times, also not really a Neil Simon fan. He says, if one could enter the mind of Neil Simon, I have the feeling it would be like attending a convention of stand-up comedians. Everyone busy topping everyone else, not really listening to anything that's being said, except to identify the keyword that will be the springboard into the next snappy retort, then the next and the next. Exhausting without being much fun. Which is more or less the way I feel about Mr. Simon's newest work, the original screenplay for The Goodbye Girl a movie that has the form of a romantic comedy, but which is so relentlessly wisecracked that it finally has the very curious effect of seeming to be rude to its own characters. Yeah, man, you know what's so funny is, um, hey, we, we hate you because you write funny, whip-smart dialogue or very quick dialogue, right? You know, um, you know. I guess if you want to criticize and say, like, is there any depth to that dialogue? Like, I think there is, and I think, like, Maybe this was something uh, a little different at the time. And, you know, because kind of when we grew up, you know, we're used to romantic comedies where like, oh, I can't stand this person. And, you know, we we quip against each other. And, and we kind of think of that as Neil Simon style dialogue. So I wonder, like, how influential something like this, which we already said was the most successful romantic comedy of all time, how how influential it was on on the entire genre going forward. Yeah, I'm sure it was. Although to be fair, the 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 form of uh, you know the people who hate each other and are thrown together and then fall in love. I mean, that goes back to the 30s and 40s. I mean, in fact, we talked about New York, New York this season, which was doing that exact uh, format as a way to potentially comment not, on the movies. Did not do of, it well, though. And no, and did not do it well. Definitely not. But I mean, it was it was commenting on movies that are much older. It certainly didn't start with Neil Simon. No, it didn't. Um, I, but I wonder if he just uh, got it to such a mainstream place. Because I mean, look, doesn't doesn't like Chekhov do that? And you know, I mean, playwrights do that as well. You know, which right? I mean, was, this. So, you know. Yes, this is definitely. Even though this wasn't a play, it definitely feels like a play. So I had to kind of dig for something more positive, and even this one is a little begrudgingly positive. Uh, but Donald McLean in the Bay Area Reporter said. The Simon New York wit has been known to wear thin quickly in recent ventures, but coupled with Herbert Ross's sensitive and astute direction, this is a return to those good old-fashioned comedies about boy meets girl, boy hates girl, girl hates boy, boy gets girl. The dialogue is expectedly Simon snappy, but there is also a steady warmth and humanity to the characters that makes them more than a barrage of one-liners. Richard Dreyfuss gives the best performance of his career thus far. It's been touted for an Oscar, and rightfully so. Marsha Mason is equally fine in a less flashy role, and the two strike wonderful sparks together. So again, it feels like he's saying this movie is good in spite of Neil Simon. It's almost comical um, that 
it was so critically uh, just torn to shreds and so not just successful commercially, but awards wise well. Yeah. And I think if you look back, I mean, if you go to like Rotten Tomatoes right now, the 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 overall critical rating is is fresh is maybe in the 70s or 80s percent because it has a lot of reviews that, you know, were written decades later when there were home video releases or whatever. And I think maybe the reputation has improved overall. Uh, and again, I think in part because there's some distance from the like crushing popularity of Neil Simon <laughs> that people can look back on him and maybe appreciate him a little more. Um, but yeah, it was it was quite the disconnect, not only between the critics and the box office, which is something we see often, but like you said, between the critics and the awards, where this movie was just showered with awards and right. uh, critics, not so much. Yeah, Josh, along with the Golden Globes and Oscar nominations you mentioned, uh, Herbert Ross, Best Director from the LA Film Critics, Best uh, Film of the Year from the National Board of Review. And uh, so, yeah, it did it did big business all the way through with uh, with the awards season. Yeah. So obviously some film critics in L.A. must have liked it, uh, whoever voted for it in that uh, organization. Jason, had you uh, had you seen this before? No, I had not seen it. And, you know, it's a title I know, but like I knew nothing about it going in. Yeah, I knew very little about it also. And uh, I will say this is embarrassing for me, uh, but going back to the theme song that we mentioned, not only did I only really know about this movie because of the theme song, but it wasn't even the original version of the theme song. The version that I know is the version by Hootie and the Blowfish from 2004. Yes, from the remake of this, which they remade with uh, Jeff Daniels and Patricia Heaton for television and use the exact same script. Like they didn't change basically anything in the script, which I think is, you know, like uh, what, like the, the psycho remake last, last uh, episode, we talked about high anxiety and the homage to Hitchcock. Remember the Gus fans and psycho shot for shot remake. So that's an interesting thing to do with a, uh, with a um, TV movie. Let's just remake it exactly as is, but use um, the mom from everybody loves Raymond. And uh, I mean, they're both good actors. We know we know Jeff Daniels and Patricia Heaton are good actors. Yeah, sure. We can take that as red. But importantly, Hootie and the Blowfish is what they're back, baby. They are. I see. And when you joked about how bad that song is, I, I have to say, not only do I like Hootie and the Blowfish, but I like their version of that song. So what's your what's your favorite? Uh, what's your favorite what? Hootie and the Blowfish song? Oh, favorite man, Hootie and the fa- Blowfish let 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 her cry maybe that's a good one that is a good one so going for a classic yeah, i'm really just if if anyone ever respected my critical faculties before this <laughs> dave any favorite hooties uh only want to be with you that's a good that's one that's a big that's one, a big one. I, I, yeah. I was going to choose time yeah also good yeah. see hootie they have a lot of good songs and i will say their version of goodbye girl also pretty good yeah none <laughs> of us chose uh hold my hand which is a bit of a surprise yeah. So yeah, I so I had never seen this before either. And and I was looking and I don't know that I had ever seen a Neil Simon movie before, like of any kind. Mm. So Oh my. Oh dear. Yeah. So this was a whole introduction for me uh on this one. Dave, had you seen this? Did you watch this one? I did watch it. And no, I hadn't seen it before. I don't even think I had heard of it. All right. Well, people in 1977 
we're way more up on this stuff than we were. <laughs> Does you have any other background you want to mention on this film, Jason? We can, uh, let, let's save it for the next segment. We'll get into it. All right. We'll get into it, baby. So we'll do that then when we come back and talk our general thoughts on The Goodbye Girl. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1977, we've been talking about the Golden Globe Best Picture Musical or Comedy winner, The Goodbye Girl, which was also a massive hit. And I don't know. I feel like this is one of these things where it the phenomenon is lost on me. So and I don't know maybe if you felt that way. And maybe lost to time because when we think of like the huge hits of 77, we don't think of this movie. And there were a lot of big hits, you know, that we've already kind of gone through. Uh, Star Wars, and we've mentioned Close Encounters, and, you know, we might uh, be mentioning Saturday Night Fever and Smokey and the Bandit coming up at some points. But we never really thought of this as a big hit. And I was the same way where I researched it. And I'm like, first rom-com to, win, to earn $100 million? That's amazing that this was it. But um, I think that speaks to... You know, sorry, critics, but um, there was something very relatable about what Neil Simon's New York wit was doing at the time. You know, maybe maybe people do speak to each other in snappy fashion here and there across the U.S. in Ames, Iowa, Josh, or perhaps Tacoma, Washington, Josh, or maybe even Tulsa, Oklahoma. You know, Josh, I don't know. I've never been to... Starkville, Mississippi, but you know, you know, I'm just saying, uh, I did want to kind of bring up how this movie came to be. Um, from what I was reading, it was, uh, the inspiration was originally based on Dustin Hoffman's life. And it wasn't supposed to be this where the setup is actor comes to the city, gets small part, you know, and then at the end of the movie becomes, gets a chance to break it big. The original script was called uh, Bogart Slept Here, and it was, hey, after actor struggles, he broke big, and now he and his family have to deal with all those repercussions and moving to the West Coast as opposed to that. Anyway, that didn't really work, and in fact, Dustin Hoffman wanted the role, and they didn't give it to him, even though they based it on his life. But it was uh, shockingly, it was Robert De Niro and Marsha Mason, and this was one of the maybe only movies maybe the only movie ever that robert de niro was fired from because the comedy wasn't coming through buddy i mean i am (laughs) shocked that robert de niro failed at playing snappy romantic comedy um i mean having watched new york new york for this for this season like what was anybody thinking casting robert de niro in i mean i guess what they were thinking is that he was a huge star and so i suppose it makes sense and maybe um, he hadn't had the chance yet to show what he can and couldn't couldn't do comedically right i suppose that's true but i mean i you know the the idea aside of dustin hoffman not being able to be cast as himself like casting richard dreyfus as dustin hoffman makes a lot of sense to me casting robert de niro as dustin hoffman Makes no sense. Well, originally Mike Nichols was attached to direct and like they were shooting, you know, with Marsha Mason and De Niro and it just wasn't working, you know, and then they kind of brought in all these actors, you know, uh, I had read like Jack Nicholson was up for it and all these other people. And then when they brought in uh, Richard Dreyfus, like the chemistry between 
he and Marsha Mason was just so good. They're like, this is where it's got to go. But at that time, okay, so it was Dustin Hoffman, Jack Nicholson, James Caan, and to- Tony Lobianco were the names that were up for it. But when they saw Dreyfus and Marsha Mason, Neil Simon said, this chemistry is absolutely right, but the script is absolutely wrong. So then he went back, and in six weeks, he basically wrote this, what we got on screen. So kind of an interesting history. And then um, one other note was that uh, since they had already filmed and it wasn't going well, the studio hedged their bets, and this became one of the first co-productions of all time between Warner Brothers and MGM. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of stories like that where you you read about these extremely successful movies that had all these problems behind the scenes, and the studio thought, oh, this movie is going to be a disaster, and yet somehow... It all comes together. You know, Neil Simon writes that script in six weeks that's better than the script that he spent however long writing initially. And the actor that they brought in to replace the original actor turns out to have more chemistry with the other actor. And it all just works exactly the way it was supposed to. And if they had done it that original way, if it had been De Niro and Marsha Mason and that other kind of story, it would have been nothing. And we wouldn't be talking about it right now because it would have been a failure. So that's interesting. And I think of that list, I wonder, I feel like James Caan maybe could have done this as well. He has the right, the right energy for it. Even though I mean, I think, I, oh, I think Dustin Hoffman could have done that. He's, he's. Good oh, well, certainly. Him. Yes. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, if Dustin Hoffman could have played and, Dustin and, Hoffman. And Mike Nichols could definitely direct a film like this. We know that. Of course. And I think maybe, I don't know if I would have enjoyed it more if Michael Nichols had directed it. I mean, of course, the thing about this movie, as much as Herbert Ross was very successful in 1977, as we've said, and was clearly a talented director, this movie is really all about Neil Simon's words. And no matter who came in to direct it, I think that was what it was going to be focused on. Yeah, so let's get into it. You know, um, so Josh, you know, this is a romantic comedy in the way we've come to understand it. Um, Like we said the way they meet, I don't think is a big deal. I don't know why Polly and Kale had such a problem with it. Basically, uh, Marsha Mason's character was living with her uh, young daughter in a New York apartment with her boyfriend. The boyfriend takes off for a gig in Italy. He's leaving them and he sublets the apartment to an actor friend who's coming in from Chicago because he's got an opportunity in New York to do Richard III off Broadway. And um, basically, Marsha Mason's character didn't know that because her last boyfriend, Tony, was kind of a jerk and he just kind of left. So now whose apartment is it? Well, technically, Elliot Garfield, our man Richard Dreyfus, has it subletted. But uh, as uh, Paula says, the character, uh, possession is nine-tenths of the law, so she's not going to leave the apartment. She's pissed off. But then they agree to, to you know, hey, we'll, we'll both live here and, um, you know, we'll argue in quippy fashion for the next hour. And then we'll also do some things together like shop or, you know, split bills. And then, of course, you know, uh, we get the boy, as, as the other critics said, boy meets girl. We get the interlocking horns of the two, which I think is the best stuff in the movie, the way those two interplay off each other in the in the beginning phases where they aren't in love with one another. And then, uh, you know, we all know what happens going forward. They kill each other. It's a murder <laughs> mystery in its second half, which is weird. <laughs> and that's and that's why it's called the goodbye girl, because they're exactly. saying goodbye to this world. No. Yeah. Um, yeah, I I agree with you. I think maybe you liked that first half more than I did, but I agree that it's better when they don't like each other. That they're they're bantering, they're they're insulting each other. That's when the snappy dialogue really works. 
because they're aiming to snap at each other. And you can believe that they're trying to be kind of cutting. Um, and once they fall in love, which happens really quickly. And I mean, that's not uncommon for romantic comedies. I think we got to get these people from antipathy to romance in a short fashion in order to end the movie. Um, but it still never really convinced me. I believed that they disliked each other, um, especially because I thought, and it was interesting to me, I didn't quote this anywhere. Um, and especially Roger Ebert's review was almost misogynistic in its dislike of Marsha Mason and her character. And m at least one other review I read was, was really critical towards not just, not her performance so much as her character. And I felt the opposite. I thought that Elliot Garfield was a total dick, a total dick. And I didn't like him at all. And I mean, not that she was super likable, but I felt between the two of them, he was much more unpleasant. And so when, the, and I feel like this is a problem in a lot of these kinds of movies where you have the characters who hate each other and then you have to believe that they fall in love, that it spends half of the movie kind of getting you to dislike them. And then suddenly you have to really be invested in their romance. And I didn't feel that way at all. But I don't think they want you to dislike either of these characters. They're showcasing their own points of view and you're supposed to be able to relate to either or both. You don't dislike either of these characters. Also, I what I don't, this is what I, I find hated funny. them. <laughs> but but did you think you were supposed to hate them or did you? No, just, no, no. You're no. right about that. You're definitely not supposed definitely to not. hate them. Yeah. yeah. And but Josh, you think Elliot's a dick, but I could only imagine what your world would be if you were moving into a new place and you found out there was a single mom right. who was dealing and her little daughter living there. Sure, of course. I mean, and really the, the person who's mostly a dick of all of these people is Tony, who we never see, who screws over both of them by subletting this apartment without telling Paula. But um, yeah, it's not that it's not that he's wrong or that he's been, you know, or that he's not been screwed over because he certainly has. Um, but I think the way he treats her when he has to understand that they've, again, they've both equally been screwed over by Tony, who we never see, but who is obviously very inconsiderate. Um, and instead of being compassionate toward her, having been also screwed over by this guy, he treats her as if she's the one who screwed him over. And that makes him much less sympathetic. Well, she treats him the same way. She doesn't let him into the apartment. She makes him stand in the freezing rain. She already says like, I'm not leaving. Like, it's not like she's there, like uh, putting her best foot forward either there, you know? Um, so I can understand not liking him for that reason, but then you have to not like her for the same reason. No, and I agree. And I don't, I, I think he's more unlikable because he's more aggressive about his attitude and she's a little less so. But I mean, I agree that, that neither of them are particularly likable. Um, I thought it was, I just thought it was interesting that critics seem to focus so heavily on her character being unlikable versus his. And not only that, but saying how, how like she's unlikable and he is so charming and so entertaining that it's like this giant dichotomy that I didn't see at all. Um, and he certainly like Richard Dreyfus gives a bigger performance here than Marsha Mason does. And, 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 and it makes sense because his character is meant to be an actor and is meant to be sort of, you know, overpowering in, in certain ways. The idea that Richard Dreyfus got an Oscar for this movie is just astounding to me, really. Um, but yeah, I think it's tough. It was tough for me to, to 
be invested in them falling in love, and it was tough for me to believe them falling in love. And I think even if you're not meant to dislike the characters, you're meant to believe that the characters dislike each other, at least at first. And, and, I, th- and I think they do dislike each other at first. I think that works really well. Yeah, no, I agree. I think I, what I'm saying is that works too well, is that they're so convincingly at each other's throats that I didn't believe the shift to them falling in love. I mean, I believed it. I mean, and maybe it's partially because it's a romantic comedy and like, you know, that's where it's going. Well, sure. I expected it. I just didn't believe it. My problem was more after they fell in love, they had, you know, what was that? Maybe an hour and 20, an hour and 30 into the movie. Right. And now you still have 20 or 30 minutes left. And they had so much plot that they threw into that last 20 or 30 minutes. And, you know, I know they set her character up to not trust men and not trust actors who leave, but she definitely comes off as very weak at the end. We're like, you're going to leave and, you know, you're going to go do this movie and forget all about us. And um, that I think makes her unlikable. And I get that. And I'm not blaming Marsha Mason as a performer. She did a great job. But like the idea of uh, a character who wouldn't be supportive of now this person that she's in love with even though she says like, well, I'm not falling apart. And if you want to come back, you can like that part really kind of, I think was not um, the strong independent woman of today. That's true. Or even the strong independent woman of 1977 that they initially kind of establish her as. And I agree. That's all very rushed towards the end. They have to create that moment where there there's conflict so that you can have the big romantic return at the end of the movie and end on that rush of, yes, they love each other and they're back. And I, I, I agree with you. All that stuff is, is, is rushed through way too much that if they wanted to create those moments of conflict and moments of doubt that they should have fallen in love earlier in the movie so that they had more time to play that out. Yeah. And um, he should have left and they should have had that conflict where like, Oh, things are really great in Seattle. I might stay here. And then he comes back in the pouring rain and, you know, bookended that way, not just with the telephone booth and the, he left his guitar. So he's got to come back, which they didn't really emphasize how important his guitar is to him and everything. Well, he does enjoy playing it in the middle of the night while naked, um, which is again, quite inconsiderate of everything. I mean, I agree. He did it in his own room. I'll give him that, but nonetheless, uh, a little weird. So yeah, a little, a little weird. So, yeah. yeah, and I was sort of surprised, I guess maybe in modern romantic comedy conventions, I just assumed that Tony would come back, that she'd open the door one day to the apartment and there would be Tony. And that would be kind of part of the conflict that Tony shows up and he's like, I want you back. And she's torn between the two, even though we know which way she's going to go. And, and none of that happened. We never see Tony at all, which I felt like was a very, even though, again, this is not a play, that's a very stagey thing to do to have this character that's always talked about, but we don't actually have to show. So we don't have to hire another actor to play them. Yeah, I, I didn't mind having no Tony there, but I I agree the convention of bringing in that third wheel um, definitely adds uh, uh, inherent conflict, so it could have worked well. Um, she's good, the little girl, Quinn. Uh, she, she does a very good job, I think, as an actress, and she got an Oscar nomination for this. How about that? Yeah, or no, she got a, did she get an Oscar? She, she did. got both. Yeah, she got yeah. both an Oscar nomination and a Golden Globe nomination. Her Golden Globe was the only one that they didn't win. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, sure, as a child actor, I suppose she's good, but that child character who's like super precocious and is like an adult is such an annoying fucking character type that it just it just drove me crazy. Yeah, yeah and, well, 
For those of you who need a quick reminder, Josh hates child actors, as we learned on Kolya. Oh, that's true. And I do hate children in general, as we, I'm sure, have mentioned. But no, I mean, I think part of the problem with these kinds of characters is they don't actually act like children. She doesn't act like a child. She acts like an adult. And in fact, at the very beginning of the movie... Paula makes a reference to the idea that the kid, she's like, oh, you were always, you know, you were born 26 years old yeah, or something like that. You're nine going on 26. Right. And so, like that. I mean, I, I don't want to fault, you know, 10-year-old Quinn Cummings or whatever. I mean, she, I'm sure, read the dialogue as written by Neil Simon, but that character is very grating, I thought. Yeah. And, Did you have a problem with the dialogue? Like, for example, this is what the, t the, the dialogue is. Like, so Richard Dreyfuss, uh, his character at one point, He's now bouncing at like a strip club, which that is super unbelievable that Richard Dreyfus would be a bouncer. Well, I wasn't sure if he was know. a bouncer. He was just a a doorman. Out, or, he yeah. was handing out flyers. He was trying to promote the club and get people to come in. Come see these magnificent nipples. <laughs> uh, anyway, so he's got a he's got a customer he's got to throw out and the guy punches him in the face. And so now he's back home and. Marsha Mason, and he's holding like a, uh, a cold steak on his face. Marsha Mason says, what happened to your eye? And he goes, I used it to stop a fist from going through my face. I think that stuff's like very good, quick dialogue and like works for the characters. And that's kind of the dialogue we hear throughout the movie, which I think part of the criticism is like it's too snappy in that that it, the snappiness takes away from the reality of it. But that's the way Neil Simon writes, just the, just like you could criticize David Mamet for the way he writes, you know? And I would. I can't stand David Mamet, but that's a whole other topic. I think, no, I mean, I think that that is a funny line that you mentioned there. And there are other funny lines. I laughed a, a handful of times. You know, we, we talked about the, the line earlier where, where Paula says, possession is nine-tenths of the law. And the daughter says, well, what's the other tenth? And that was a funny line that I laughed at. And there's certainly, like, Neil Simon is clever. I'm not saying that he isn't, but I think the criticism that the snappiness of the dialogue overshadows, like, character development, and especially overshadows the convincingness of the romance, and in a lot of ways works against the convincingness of the romance, that they're so snappy at each other that you can't buy them then falling in love. I mean, I think that does kind of work against what the movie is trying to do as a story. Like, is it funny? Are some of the jokes funny? Sure. Are some of the jokes not funny? Yeah. And I mean, there's some humor in this movie that is very outdated. And the whole subplot about Elliot getting this part in the Shakespeare play in Richard III and the, the director deciding that he has to play it as this flamboyant gay man is definitely not something we would we would see right now. And also I feel like was completely like not funny and not effective. And it's a whole long subplot that I guess is supposed to be about Elliot's, you know, doubts about his acting career or whatever. But I don't think that that worked at all. I agree with you. That is the worst part of the movie. Mm -hmm. But as you had said from at least one of the reviews that you uh, mentioned, critics love that part of the movie. They Ebert, did. Yeah. Ebert called it the funniest. Uh, I had the, I wrote the quote down because it was so crazy for me. It was. Uh, yeah. I mean, well, going back to our, our last episode about Mel Brooks, he compared it to springtime for Hitler. He said it's the funniest scene staged. Uh, yeah. The funniest in a movie since Mel Brooks staged springtime for Hitler. You know, and what you're getting is one. Yes, it's outdated. Like this idea of like a flamboyant queen, you know, uh, uh, Richard Dreyfus, and, and, and I mean, I don't know. I look, we all grew up, uh, 
like with that type of humor. And I'm guilty of it too, doing that, you know, type of thing, you know, but that definitely felt out of place, out of time and not funny to me. Yeah, no, I agree. And weirdly, like it, it, it is outdated, but it's also clearly even at the time offensive. There's a, there's a line in there at one point when Richard Dreyfus, when Elliot is, is appalled that he's been told to play it this way and he's trying to argue himself out of it. And he says to the director something to the effect of, you know, the gay liberation movie is going to crucify me. And so, or movement is going to crucify me. And so they know, even the characters know that this is offensive and bad. And yet it's such a huge part of the movie in the middle of the movie there. And I just, that didn't make sense to me. Yeah. And he, you know, we mentioned springtime for Hitler, which is the Prime example of doing something so offensive, so bad that it's good. This is just offensive and bad that it's bad. Right. And springtime for Hitler, like, is using that offensiveness to make a comment about comedy and about the way that Nazis get representative and all that stuff. And this is, there's no, there's no satirical intent to this. It's just held up as like, wouldn't it be ridiculous if Richard III acted well, this way? Well, I got to give... You know, I got to give them a little pass here because from what I read, Marsha Mason was actually in a play, uh, a staging of Richard III, where they had a, um, you know, the director wanted the star to play Richard III like this. So, you know, I, I, I don't mind the idea of like, hey, I'm an actor. My whole life depends on this role. And um, my director is going to screw the whole thing up for me. But I just didn't right. think this worked. So. Yeah, no, I mean, that idea and the thematic idea that I think it's trying to get out with the character of him, you know, finally getting the chance to have his big break and then it's being sabotaged and he's doubting whether he's going to make it and all stuff. That's all fine. And that makes sense for the character. It's just the way that it's being portrayed. Right. I agree with you on that. I mean, I would say what it does or what the intention is, is to give the Elliot character some vulnerability, which he in turn shows to Paula and shows a different side of himself. And, you know, that kind of helps spring their romance forward. But um, but then, you know, he quickly gets a job as like an improv actor and then he's like all over her seemingly out of nowhere. So I don't know. Improv makes people horny, right? I mean, you've you've learned that. You've done a lot of improv. (laughs) Give me a premise, man. So, yeah. (laughs) I I, I agree. Like, I really like the first hour of this movie. And then the last, you know, 45 minutes, 50 minutes, just kind of like, no, no. So kind of fell apart. I was really, really liking the movie. Yeah, I was never really, really liking it. I was sort of like mildly amused by it for a while. And then it just... uh, I stopped being amused at all. And um, and Dave, I think, didn't like it at all. Not really. No. <laughs> yeah. No, it, it's funny. Going into this season, um, you, you guys know that like most of my favorite movies are a lot more recent things from the 2000s and stuff like that. And and I haven't seen enough of these you know movies and further back. But I was worried a lot of this season was going to be stuff like this that I just really didn't connect with. And you know, I've been happy to say I've loved a lot of what we've watched so far this season, but this one is exactly the kind of thing that I was just like, Ugh, I'm not looking forward to exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think this is one of those movies that we can see like this was a huge phenomenon at the time and it just doesn't hold up. Although, I mean, mm. there are plenty of people who still love this movie. We should say sure. that yeah. it's still beloved by a lot of people and not just people who saw it in 1977, but people who see it now. Neil Simon is still very popular and his plays are still performed. 
Um, so there's certainly a fan base, including a current fan base for this, but it just does not uh, include us, I think. All right. Well, let's rate this thing, Josh. Uh, what would you like to rate this out of five flamboyantly gay Richard III's? Well, obviously, that's what we have to do. So uh, I, I'm going to I'll go first. I'm actually going to give it three because I thought the first hour was so strong and it does dip for me. But I, I think the first hour is so strong. I'm going to give it three flamboyantly gay Richard III's. All right. Yeah, I'll, I'm going to give it a two and a half. I, I didn't hate it. Um, and I, I did laugh a few times, but just overall, it didn't it didn't work for me. But it's not the worst movie that we've talked about this season. So two and a half out of five for me. Dave, do you want to rate this one? I'll go with two. Um, I certainly chuckled a few times. So, I mean, it, it wasn't terrible. Two. There you go. The- you scoundrel. Two flamboyantly gay Richard the Thirds for what I think. Josh, what is the worst movie we covered this season? Well, it's obviously it's New York, New York. It's terrible. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I think we would all agree on that. So we'll uh, come back then and talk about the legacy of The Goodbye Girl. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1977, We've been talking about The Goodbye Girl, which won the Golden Globe for Best Picture, Musical, or Comedy, and was somehow a massive sensation in 1977. And we didn't really like it all that much, but it certainly had an impact. I think, as Jason, as you were, were saying, it because of its huge popularity as a romantic comedy, it seems to have had a pretty strong influence on romantic comedies going forward. I think so. And then, you know, we're going to get to the best picture winner here, which was Annie Hall, which kind of swept all the Oscars away from this one. But I wonder if those two together just kind of like kind of super collided and moved the genre um, into uh, an even bigger part of the mainstream. Yeah, I think you're probably right. And and the, that it definitely exploded in the 80s. And, you know, we talked about when Harry met Sally in our 1989 season, which was maybe like the apex of that. And you can definitely see this movie being a precursor to something like When Harry Met Sally. Yeah, I agree with that. And uh, it's funny now because romantic comedies have just had their resurgence uh, because of streamers. Dave, what do you think of that? The mm, streaming yeah. platforms have given uh, romantic comedies a whole new life. Right. But but how many of those do you think we're still going to be talking about 30, 40 years? From, yeah, from now? probably, probably not any of them. No, I disagree. I disagree. Like, you know, Josh, uh, as we've talked about a movie like Plus One or Palm Springs, movies that you can only see. Like, look, th- to say that we're not going to be talking about these movies 30 years from now, you're looking at it from your old antiquated way of watching a movie. You know, this is most most of the younger generations watch movies only on, uh, you know, their phones or tablets or devices now. It's not about that. It's about the movies themselves. I mean, I like both of those movies, Plus One and Palm Springs, but are they going to be something that stands the test of time when, you know, the young people, as you say, people who are young now are not young anymore are, you know, and and people who are young in the future, are they going to be seeing those movies and talking about those movies? I don't, I mean, obviously we, we can't say, I mean, we yeah. have no idea. But I think you're looking at it wrong. I think you're looking at it like, oh, these are on streamers now, so they're not going to get it. What I'm saying. No, I don't think it has any, it doesn't have anything to do with the, the right. platform. It's about the quality of the movie itself. Right, but I think there are quality movies 
that are only finding those homes on platforms now. A movie like this would not be released today in the theater because it doesn't have an Avenger in it or it doesn't have 17 explosions in it or something like that. Right. No, I absolutely agree. And it's insane that this movie was so successful because you're right. If this movie was made now, it would be a Netflix movie. It would not be released in theaters. I, I, I'm, I, I agree with you on that. I just am not sure that there are any of those movies that are coming out now that have that kind of quality as a movie that will lead them to have that longevity. But again, I don't really know. It's, it's yeah. impossible for me to say. Sure. And I think there will be. I just, I think the idea of romantic comedies as a theatrical endeavor is probably gone. Yeah. Uh, no, yeah. You, you may be right about that. So, yeah. Um, so we should talk about, I mean, Herbert Ross, as we mentioned, had this amazing year in 1977 with between this movie and The Turning Point. And even though he's not usually discussed as one of the great, I mean, we have so many big sort of titans of cinema that we're talking about in this season between Martin Scorsese and Werner Herzog and George Lucas and Mel Brooks. And, and he's not usually on that list, but I mean, he had an incredibly successful career. Um, he started in the theater. And so he did a lot of theatrical adaptations, including working with Neil Simon multiple times. But I mean, he also directed Footloose. He directed Steel Magnolias. I mean, these, these massive blockbusters and cultural phenomena. So he had quite a career. Yeah, he was interesting to research because he did so much in both forms, theater and film, right? Like he started as a dancer and a choreographer and he directed um, the theater. And like you said, he and Neil Simon collaborated eight times for the screen, which is pretty awesome, you know? And um, yeah, some big, big movies, The Owl and the Pussycat. We're going to be talking about... Um, Woody Allen coming up and, you know, he directed Play It Against Sam, which was one of the few movies that Woody Allen wrote and starred in, but didn't direct, you know, uh, Sunshine Boys, like you said, uh, some good stuff in the 80s there. So I looked it up, Josh, his movies received 38 Oscar nominations over the years. That's wow. pretty amazing. They won three. So not the best winning percentage, but... <laughs> Richard Dreyfuss, best actor here. Maggie Smith for, I think, California Suite, maybe the year after. And then in 75, George Burns, best supporting actor for the Sunshine Boys. 38 Oscar nominations. That's no joke, dude. Right. And I think what's impressive about that is he, you would expect like Steven Spielberg to have directed movies that got that many Oscar nominations. But this is a, a filmmaker that I feel like most people have not heard of. Yeah. Yet made all those movies. Right. And we had heard of him, but I don't think we had given him his, his, uh, just do here, Josh. So, right. You know, and, and like you said, like, I mean, he had a good, as good a night as anybody ever at the golden globes. Right. Right. Um, let's quickly talk about this. Cause this was nominated for best picture lost to Annie hall. Um, Julia star Wars and the turning point were the other ones. As director, he was nominated, lost to Woody Allen for Annie hall. Spielberg was nominated for close encounters. Fred Zimmerman for Julia, George Lucas for Star Wars, and then Richard Dreyfuss beat out Woody Allen, and he beat out Richard Burton, Mar Marcello Mastrioni, and John Travolta. So, And uh, Marsha Mason lost to Diane Keaton, also in that category, and Bancroft, Jane Fonda, Shirley MacLaine. Yeah. I mean, it had some serious competition that it was able to overcome in some of those awards. And, and of course, Neil Simon, uh, even you know, with and without Herbert Ross, 
was a huge phenomenon in the 70s and 80s with his plays being adapted into films and uh, writing directly for the screen as well and uh, continues to be or did continue to be adapted all the way into the 90s. And it was interesting to me, we mentioned the remake of this in 2004 uh, with Patricia Heaton and Jeff Daniels. And that, as of now, is the last screen adaptation of a Neil Simon play or a Neil Simon work. It's only a matter of time before another odd couple comes out or someone tries to do barefoot in the park or something. Right. Yeah, you would think so. I was surprised that there hadn't been something else uh, that's come up since then. Um, this was also adapted. The Goodbye Girl was adapted into a stage musical, even though it didn't start as a play. It was made into a play in 1993 uh, as a musical starring Martin Short in the Richard Dreyfus role, which I think uh, I would hate. Uh, and Bernadette Peters, and it played it played on Broadway and was actually nominated for some Tonys, but it wasn't a very successful musical. It's not something that's really been revived or anything like yeah, that. Yeah, five five Tony nods, and you're you're underestimating how awesome Martin Short is because he can do anything. So I think yeah, I think you meant I'm <clears> underestimating <throat> how awful Martin Short is. Is that what no, you meant to say? No, I love Martin Short, and uh, you're you're just being an old curmudgeon today, um, <laughs> but that's fine. Hey, Josh, there were also. Uh, I also want to mention before we go on and talk about this, because we mentioned Herbert Ross and uh, and Neil Simon collaborated eight times. Uh, Ray Stark, the producer, he and Neil Simon had 11 screen collaborations together. That's pretty amazing, too. Yeah, I mean, Neil Simon was, again, in the especially in the 70s and 80s, was like gold if you just took a Neil Simon play and put it on screen. And then Richard Dreyfuss, I mean, of course, is still is still working, although... He he peaked, I think, you know, as we said, we he had this great 1977 between this and uh and Close Encounters. And I felt like he peaked maybe in the 80s or in the in the early 90s. He was also nominated for an Oscar for Mr. Holland's Opus. And I feel like that was the last time he was really like a big deal. Yeah, but I, I think he stepped away purposely as well, you know. I mean, he still works now. He just he's in a lot of like straight to video movies and like guest starring on TV shows and yeah. stuff and and not that level. And I've never seen, have you seen Mr. Holland's Opus? Yeah, he's great in it and it was a good movie. Yeah, all right, fair enough. So, and then he and um, Neil Simon collaborated again for the screen and Lost in Yonkers also in the 90s. Yeah. So also I wanted to say, Josh, how many, did you read how many failed attempts there were to transition this over to a sitcom? Oh, I did see that, yeah. And I can absolutely see this being a sitcom. I think it was, was it three, three failed pilots that never made it? Yeah, and two starring an actress named Karen Valentine, who I don't know, but that's funny that she she was the star of it twice and the other had Joe Beth Williams. So they really wanted she really wanted to be the goodbye girl. But yeah, I mean I think I think there's a lot of sitcom-y rhythms to this and the fact that it largely takes place in this one location in the apartment, like absolutely I could see this being a sitcom. Right. I agree with you. But um, clearly it shouldn't be after three failed attempts. No, no. I don't think that would be a good idea. Obviously it didn't work out, but it, it doesn't surprise me that they attempted it. Hey, um, I want to say one thing, Josh, as, uh, as yes. someone who has uh, uh, tried to do some Neil Simon in like some scene study acting, you know, work. I think he gets a bad rap as like, oh, it's just quick dialogue and this and that. Like, there's a lot of depth and a lot of work you have to do to figure it out as an actor. Like there's a reason that like Matthew Broderick exploded after he worked with Neil Simon and people like that. You know what I mean? Like he's done a lot for a lot of careers. I think he sometimes gets a bad rap as like 
um, the depth of what he's writing. Well, like I said, this is the only Neil Simon work that I've seen, and I didn't necessarily feel like there was a ton of depth to it. But I, I can't really say. And I'm, and I, obviously, I'm not an actor. I've never tried to play a Neil Simon part, so I have to give you uh, the authority. Well, on if we get five new members of the Patreon, Josh and I will be reading the odd, <laughs> the odd couple together, and we'll do the reverse part. I'll play the straight guy, and you can play the the wacky character. Oh, yeah, that's definitely not something anyone wants to hear. Marsha Mason still working, still working. Josh. Yes, she is. She, as you mentioned, she was married to Neil Simon at this time. And so he wrote uh, several parts for her. They work together. She works also like kind of in TV. I think she's she's had a recurring role on Grace and Frankie, is it? Which I, I never watched, but is a very popular show on Netflix. Yeah, with our friend Lily Tomlin also from this year. And uh, Jane Fonda, who was a huge star in the 70s that we don't, talk about this season yes but i guess that 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 whole that show is a is a is a refuge for big awesome stars in the year 1977 in the 1970s yeah yeah and um, she's also teaching actor acting at uh, the uh, herbert Berghoff studios in new york from what i read so that's awesome there you go yeah she's she worked she also worked a lot on stage um of course which i'm sure is is how she connected with neil, neil simon uh quinn cummings who we mentioned is the the child actor who was nominated for an Oscar and a Golden Globe, but she left acting. She she had a few more roles as a child, but decided that was not what she wanted to do. And uh, she's had quite an interesting sort of life afterwards. She's she's a writer. She's written several books. She invented some sort of uh, baby holding device. Yeah, was, like, uh, like a baby Bjorn type thing. Yeah, that seemed to have made her a lot of money. Yeah. Um, and, and of course, relevant here, she has a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Quinn Cummings gives bad advice is her podcast where people write in for advice. I actually listened to part of it. It was, um, eh. she needs a co-host. Well, I was going to say we should write in for advice, but now that you just ripped her, I don't know how <laughs> we can do that. Hip hugger. That was the name of her baby Bjorn type thing. But, uh, I haven't listened to her podcast, but I, I could use some bad advice in my life. There you go. To be fair. I only listened to a little bit of it cause it was kind of a last minute thing. And, uh, maybe, Maybe there's more to it than I heard. Um, and the last legacy thing I wanted to mention is uh, Paul Benedict, the actor who plays the director of The Terrible mm -hmm. Richard III. Uh, relevant to our show, he played uh, the not Guffman in uh, Waiting for Guffman, which we did a bonus episode about in our 1996 season, a very memorable part in that movie. That is true. Uh, a few other awards this thing won. Uh, BAFTA for Best Actor and the Italian Oscars, the Davide Donatello Awards, Foreign Director, Foreign Actor win. Did you read that Herbert Ross was married to uh, Jackie O's little sister? I did not, but that's something. That's kind of interesting. Lee Reds, Willie. And uh, sorry, my voice is going here, guys. The last thing I wanted to mention, and th this was on uh, Wikipedia, so maybe it's not true. That apartment, the apartment they were living in, two-bedroom, bathroom, kitchen, living room space in 1977 in the Upper West Side was $200. So they said in like 2017, based on that, the uh, inflation, it would have been $811. But at that point in time, for a studio or a one-bedroom in the same neighborhood, $3,259. Yeah, well, that's not just inflation. Obviously, rent in New York City has gone way up. Yeah, the rent is too damn high, as that guy used to say. That guy, an important legacy. 
of the Goodbye Girl. So <laughs> that's the Goodbye Girl. And that's this episode of Awesome Movie Year. You can follow us on social media. You can. And if you're not, you should ask yourself why you aren't. I'm Jason Harris Comedy on uh, Facebook and Instagram. Jay Harris Comedy on Twitter. Go for Jason.com. Uh, it's a thing. I don't know what it is. A website? Sure, we'll go with that. Uh, AwesomeMovieYear.com. That's got a feed in an about section. We're Awesome Movie Year on Facebook and Instagram. Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter. We appreciate all the love on Twitter. We do get a lot of nice responses on Twitter. We do, and we get we get good responses on Facebook too. We always appreciate a, a, any feedback people have for us. It's nice to know that people are listening and enjoying our weird Richard Dreyfus impressions. Um, <laughs> you, sir, have crossed the line one too many times. <laughs> you can find me at joshbellhateseverything.com, at joshbellhateseverything on Facebook, and at Signalbleed on Twitter. And you can listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. You can check it out wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media at PiecingPod and check out our Facebook group, Popcorn and Puzzle Pieces. And uh, we should also mention the Patreon that uh, features bonus content from Piecing It Together, from us here at Awesome Movie Year, including that episode about Waiting for Guffman. Uh, from All Rice, No Beans, as well as some of David Rosen's cool music. And uh, with Jason, you said we were going to get five extra patrons in order to perform The Odd Couple. I yeah. feel like that's that's ambitious. I don't know if we can. Well, so far we've got zero. So that's why I, I thought if I said one, you wouldn't go for it. But I think if we got five. You might you might do a reading of the odd couple with me. I'm about to go make some some fake accounts just because I want to see that. <laughs> yeah, so. I think we we had we had previously set the goal of getting one extra patron, and we were going to do push ups maybe from the the pumping iron episode. I feel like we've obligated ourselves to do far too many things here. Well, yeah, but I think people want to see us really do the odd couple. <laughs> maybe mm -hmm. we can do the odd couple while doing push ups. I definitely cannot do that. No, no, I can't. Either. So, but please sign up for the Patreon, not for those reasons, but because there's some cool extra content there. And uh, what? Oh, Jason, what is in our next episode? Josh, I hope it's the best picture winner because that's what I'm about to plug right now. Yes. So if it's not, we're in trouble. It's the best picture winner. Uh, and we mentioned it a lot today. It's uh, Annie Hall by Woody Allen. Yeah, so that's kind of a counterpoint to this, and that'll be interesting to look at. So tune in next time for Annie Hall, and thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.